I ran a cast does not shut down. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome. We are Irenicast. I'm Jeff. I'm Alan. I'm Bonnie. I'm Casey. This is Raj. And on the first and third Tuesday of every month, we bring to you our perspectives on theology and culture from a post-evangelical lens. Thank you for joining us for another conversation to provoke your progressive Christian imagination. This week, we got the whole team together. Brand new year, brand new hosts. Just a, just a us. brand new feel to the show in general. So we are very excited about 2019. And this week we're going to be talking, we're going to just, we're just going to hit the ground running and we're going to be talking about race. And for our segment, we have a brand new one called Over Under, which I'm very excited about. Raj proposed this idea. And not only did Raj propose the idea for the segment that we're going to do, also the conversation, and he's just going to be leading us in this conversation, which I think is appropriate. So Raj, I'm going to hand it over to you. Guide us, mold us, shape us, challenge us, do your thing. Wow. Yeah, that's, a, that's a, just a little short of creepy. <laughs> what did I sign up for? <laughs> but uh, no, thanks. I The thought for this episode, having a conversation on race, is in honor of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. His work has inspired and challenged a nation and the world and it covered a lot of things, just economics, anti-war, prison reform, but race was central. We as a nation have struggled with race, have perpetrated a great amount of evil, um, and we continue to struggle with it. Now, race and racism are two different things, but are obviously intertwined. And props to the Dream Team, the Dream Podcast team of Arenicast for taking on this topic, being willing to to dive in because this is an uncomfortable space. And that's part of Dr. King's challenge was, you know, progress is not easy. Uh, it takes examination, reflection. And today we embrace that challenge and step into an uncomfortable space. So first question for the group, how do you define race? That's a long pause. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> just, just, you know, don't waste any time. Get right into it, Raj. <laughs> I, okay. I, I guess I'll be really vulnerable and just say how I think about it as a white person who grew up in a largely white town. And by largely, I mean like 80% up in the mountains where people would say things like racism is not a problem anymore <laughs> and dumb stuff like that. Uh, when I think about, Race, I think about two things at the same time. On the one hand, it's a like culturally construct, it's a constructed thing. Um, I think about like the eugenicists and stuff in our history who said that there are different classifications of human beings based on different markers and things like that. And I really am resistant to the idea of classifying people <laughs> like the eugenicists did. Um, but at the same time, I recognize that it is a reality that people live with and are born into and find meaning in. And so I want to respect that, but also know that it's not something like, I, I think that there's a, there's an element of um, construction involved in that, that it's not like, I don't know. So for, so it's hard, hard to answer that for me. It's kind of ambiguous in, in some ways, but I, I, I immediately think about like in native American contexts, how there's rules about like, certain percentages like you can't claim some sort of like racial or ethnic heritage unless you have a certain percentage and that's imposed upon people and r rather than it being like a um for me it's it, it's <laughs> well, i guess what i'm trying to say is there's an element of culture involved in that and i don't know exactly what that looks like you think there's culture involved in race alan sort of um because I'm really resistant to the idea that they're just like different types of people. Like, okay, you belong to a classification scientifically of this race of people, like the traditional, you know, there's three types or whatever, and everybody's a permutation of that. I think that that's like an artificial kind of delineation of there is this kind of person and that kind of person. Does that make sense? Like everybody is totally different, but when someone talks about their race, like they have a right to do that, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how you like tease all of that out, but I think race 
is something that we construct as a society. Does that make sense? I, I don't know. I don't know if that's like right or wrong, but maybe this is the episode where I get my head straight. Right. I, I think that's part of it. And I, I've been thinking a lot about this ever since, ever since Trayvon Martin, it was a real eye opener for me personally. Um, because I do think it's cultural, but partly cultural, but I think that also it's, it's visual in the sense that we are tribal by our, you know, evolution or whatever. And there's obviously we're looking at in the culture right now, there's a tendency to be hesitant of something that's different from us. And then when we are surrounded by a political system that fortifies, you know, pun intended, fortifies and puts walls around that idea and then causes it to become a norm, then it's easier to, to be afraid of it or to react to it. It's also for me, honestly, it's hypothetical. Like I do not and have not experienced or understand what someone who is the victim of racism faces. So part of it also is there's a, there has to be a willingness on my part to accept someone's story and life for what it is and let go of my need to understand and let go of my need to to kind of come up with the right formula or the right structure to be able to make it fit into my world. I have to like literally in my, not literally, but figuratively in my heart, I have to let down my walls and be uncomfortable with that. And I think that race is a complex thing. And not only that, but it's also a, a time issue. It's a historical issue is that I've, I've had the privilege for the longest time to be able to say, like Alan was saying, race is in the past. Well, that was then, and this is now, and there's no effect of it now, but I can't, that history has to inform the now. So it, to me, race is, is everything like it's, it's cultural, it's physical, it's evolutionary, it's political, it's historical, like all that stuff has to be taken into account. If we're going to have a serious conversation about it, let alone like serious action towards changing. I think that that helps clarify something before um, everyone else jumps in. Like, I just wanted to say that people who say, oh, it's racism or race is not an issue. Oh, let's not bring up race. Let's not talk about that. To me, that is doing violence against people. So when I say something's constructed, I'm not saying that in a negative way. Does that make sense? I think like most of our, most of our identity is constructed or given to us by our communities and all kinds of things. So I, I just remember all these Christian people being like, Oh, this is not a race issue. And they'll put out articles and stuff and they'll be like, don't make it a race issue. And, and that to me does violence toward human bodies. I really like Jeff saying like race is everything, um, especially in these times. Is I mean, race is experiential, right? I mean, people, this is what they experience in their bodies. And I remember having conversations with friends and a white friend of mine saying to one of my friends of color, like, I don't see, I don't see color. Like, I don't see, uh, I see beyond that. And I, I'll never forget my friend saying, then you don't see me. Like, and, and by that meaning, like, you don't see what I experience in my day to day life. Like, you don't, you don't, you haven't been on the journey that I've been on. Uh, and so, yeah, I think that race is everything. And I think, especially in these times as we talk about building walls, right? Walls, not just physical walls, but even walls around people's hearts. I mean, the reality is, is that, um, we see it happening everywhere. I, I I agree with a lot of what everybody has said so far. I think it's really important in this conversation and in conversations about race in general that white people see themselves as having race. Right. And that's right. I, I, I think that absolutely. You know, the journey to being able to identify as having a race and my race in this country is white. And what does that mean? You know, we talked about it's cultural. Well, does that mean that whiteness is cultural? It has has culture, um, and yeah, it's called you know, normal culture, right? That's how we've defined it. <laughs> Honestly, that's exactly how we've defined it. Like, what's the the cultural norm is white culture, right? So I think of I think of James Cone's um, the preface to his theology on black liberation, where he talks about um, whiteness as ontological, right? Like it's 
And like the reality is that like, um, it's not just the normative, it's what's formed everything in our culture in terms of the oppression. Like that's what systemic sin is. Like, like we can say, well, it's normative culture, but what does that even mean? Exactly. It means oppressing, it means oppressing people of color. That's really what it is. Oppressing people of color and oppressing and oppressing people of different, even different uh, religious traditions. Like, that's what it is. I just had like a moment where I realized something. Maybe that's why people can't talk about things like white privilege is because they haven't gone through the process of owning the fact that whiteness is even a thing. It, exactly. And not, not just whiteness is a thing, but I am white. To say those words, I am white in relationship to race and in relationship to all people, there's, there, there's a whole journey that is involved in being able to come to that, I think, in, in a heart kind of way. I hear that whiteness is normative and ontological, but I also hear that race is socially constructed. So therefore, if we are going to do the work of unpacking, not unpacking, deconstructing, dismantling, eradicating racism, then I think we have to like not affirm those ideas like whiteness is ontological, though it's functioning now that in that way, it is a social construction that we're operating within. And we can socially deconstruct what has been socially constructed. At least that's, you know, I hope so. I think that's the hope. Because whiteness obscures as much as it defines. And I've had that conversation in y'all's household. Bonnie and Raj talking about how um, whiteness has allowed people, not allowed people, but separated people from their own cultural and physical embodied family identities over the years. And that, that kind of reframed my brain a little bit, I think for this conversation. So Raj, what, what about you? I feel like uh, all of us <laughs> to a certain extent are, you know, yeah. speaking from what we've read in books and heard from others. Um, but yeah. like, I loved what Casey said is that, that race is experiential. Um, yeah. and it's aside from, you know, the whiteness that we've been talking about, it's not my experience and it never will be. So as someone who has experienced that, what is your definition? Do you mean like you have an experienced racial distance? Is that what you're talking about? Like from the majority in society or something? I have not had an experience that has made me painfully aware of my race, of my color. I've take I take it for granted everywhere I go. I just I can smile at someone while I'm walking down the road. I can walk into something. The only time I ever got suspicion was because of my age. You know, like if I was younger and I was you know perusing around the. Whatever. I've never thought about that before. You're right. That I guess you can I can confess that too. I've never had a moment in my life where I felt like my race was an issue or where it was something that I had to even deal with with other people. And that's kind of odd thinking about that because I know friends who like that is everyday life for them and and that's what they tell me. I've never really thought through that for myself, I guess. Yeah, it's uh, you know, some of it has to do with proximity to other races. Yep, and, that's true. Um, you know, I've seen white people get a lot of grief just for being white, <laughs> but that's in, you know, communities or settings that are largely non-white and and there can be a lot of anti-white scorn amongst uh, various minoritized groups. It doesn't often bleed out in various ways. I mean, you see it come out in comedy a lot. Yeah, yeah I, I got made fun of for uh, going to the a camping trip where we like looked in each other's eyes and ate avocados and stuff, and basically did wore our snuggies in the forest. And you know that GIF where all the white family has their snuggies and their coffee, and they're all kind of dancing. That's like it. That's like such an extreme form of whiteness. Now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, I got one. I've been made fun of for for doing Let's white see. people things. That's true in yeah, like a well, comic in like a comedy sense in a well, helpful even. Even then, though, Raj, like you speak of that idea of like proximity and everything. I went to junior high and high school in white minority schools. So it was mm. predominantly Hispanic and, and Asian. And even then, like even though I was called the white boy or whatever, even then it's because I knew that that was 
a microcosm of the rest of my life and what I saw on TV and as far as representation. So even in proximity at from someone who experienced places where I was one of the only white people, not one of the only white people, but I was certainly in the minority, even then because of the overall culture, it's honestly like I, I, I can't imagine comparing that experience to someone of color who, who can't stop that when they go into the store or when they go home or when they watch TV. No, that that's not my uh, intention at all by bringing that to the surface because there there is no comparison. It's not at all right, right, the, right. The same thing. I was you just know, more life, clarifying for my own purposes. Yeah. Like, no, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. But yeah, your life isn't in danger because you're white. I mean that you want to bring it home. That right. that's what it comes yeah. down to. Um, but race, it is you know it, it's such a complicated thing, and there's so many things about. Uh, racial identity that I I find beautiful. Um, I think the the human family being diverse and and race can be a way to describe our collective diversities. Uh, it, it, the trouble comes when we start to put value on one type of identity over another type of identity, rather than seeing us all as you know tiles in a mosaic. That is beauty. Um, and I, I think that's where, you know, tri- Jeff talked about tribalism. That's where we get into trouble over and over and over again. So, um, yeah, race is, is there. It is pervasive. There's no way <laughs> around it. Um, and and that's why this conversation is attempting to deal with it. But you say we're getting into trouble over and over again. And I we're in the middle of a government shutdown right now over that very issue over something that is frankly about race. And so for people who say it doesn't exist, like there are people in my family and in my circles who will say racism is not a thing anymore. And now they're like, Oh, there's Nazis marching in the streets. So I guess there are some off people here and there that are racist still. But um, a lot of us don't see, the realities that like, like there it's weird to think that there are 800,000 people not being paid right now because of a racist stunt more than anything else. Like the history of why the wall needed to be built was it started with a campaign. It started with AIDS trying to keep Donald Trump on task to talk about immigration. Cause that played to a base that felt very racist and it was able for him to be able to, define his base over and against people who look differently and were differently than them. And so from that tiny little seed germinated this entire thing. So if it's something that can shut down a government and affect our national life historically, I mean, we're going to get to a point where, you know, the government's never been shut down this long. It's probably more important than ever to talk about that. They're not just tiny little issues that pop up and affect. And, 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 I'm not saying tiny. I'm just saying that white people tend to talk about them as isolated events. And that's a really rough thing for our communal life. Yeah, I think the the isolated event uh, point, Alan, is is a really valuable one. The recognition that it's part of the fabric of this country is racial subjugation, um, gender subjugation is is huge. And it's difficult because this country can say, well, look at how much success we've gotten so quickly. So somehow the the it's just such a such a messed up messed up national identity, and we've got a lot of atoning to do, I think, before we can really make progress. And that's another conversation, though. So I want I want to move us along a little bit, and and um, before we move from that, I just um, the sense of tribalism and the reality of how complex this issue is. Um, I just. I begin to wonder about all of these like 23andMe and all these things that allow people to begin to look into their own history um, and and what they're willing to own or what they're willing to talk about from that. I mean, I'm Native, right? I, I am a part of the Chickasaw Nation. Um, I get my voting ballot every year, but I present as a white man, right? A white man in the world. And so... Um, trying to even navigate that. What does that mean? You know, how do you, how do we talk about that? Or how, how do I, how do I talk about that in my family and in my life? So it it is complex. Yeah, it's, it's difficult. So we've already touched on this a little bit, but just for the, to, to sort of clarify and bring it into one, 
one piece of the conversation is how do you individually identify uh, as in, in regards to race? Well, even before answering that question, um, I just I think it's important to note that race is was set up to make some people have more things than other people. And so the the whole construction of race is intended to make sure that people with whites, it's, and it's all based on physical characteristics. It's not really based on ethnic heritage. That's or right. Background. That's exactly right. It's based on how you look and then how, when you walk into the room, people see you. It's like, you know, there's, it's a connection between the two. And so I guess I'm just questioning our, the conversation. Like, I think we've come to a place where something that was set up to be really harmful and subjugating to certain groups of people based on physical characteristics that they walk around with. I, I heard somebody say, like, race is beautiful. And, and it, it, it is like, and so I'm just wondering, like, how do we hold the, the tension between something that was set up to be so harmful and to keep us so s- separated and certain groups of people subjugated? Like, how are we in a moment of, of transforming that into recognizing part of our identities, our racial identities as beautiful? Do we need different language to talk about these things? Or are we going I mean, on the other end where we're, we're going from just a different form of racism to hate and violence to fetishizing and like putting on a completely different level? So like, I feel like we, we define racism as when people say, I'm not racist. Well, because I'm not wearing a white hood and have a Confederate flag in my back. But, but you know, like we've had people, we've had guests on the show that talk about, you know, uh, black women talking about people touching their hair and like all that. That stuff that goes into that from well-meaning, you know, quote unquote progressives like watch. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the HBO show Insecure, but the the lead female character is a black woman and she works in a very progressive nonprofit organization with a lot of other progressive white people and really highlights those progressive racism from white people and, and, you know, watch it get out like this year, just in terms of entertainment and representation was amazing. But all of those things, like we have to broaden our definition of racism before we can even begin to imagine deconstructing it. Yeah. In- insecure is like must watch television. Absolutely. For progressive it's whites. so good. Absolutely. I'm insecure because I've never seen it right now. Well, get, get on, get on Netflix, man. I think it's on Netflix. I think the book's coming out soon, Alan. <laughs> hey. <laughs> Hey now. <laughs> um, so let let's skip over that that one question because I think we we've actually covered a, a lot of that already. And so now I want to shift to to white privilege, which came up earlier. What's your relationship to understanding of white privilege? Let's define privilege. Do you have a definition for that, Raj? That we're using is it like entitlement, unearned? You know, just like perks. <laughs> perks. <laughs> Sounds like I, it's a salary package, you know. Well, <laughs> uh, no, I, I, heard, I, I just heard Joe Rogan say that um, white privilege is not the problem. The problem is that other people don't have access to that privilege. Like the problem is not that some people have representation on the news. The problem is that other people don't. The, you know, the problem is not that you don't um, well, that's... You walk freely, freely through the world. And, and I, I think what he said was problematic, but – I think somewhere in there, there is like just a touch of, of um, truth in that what white people have, and this is my opinion, is something that other people should have. Like, so white privilege is the idea that when I turn on the, turn on the TV, I see myself represented well and other people, there are systematic reasons why they are not represented well. Also, you know, for, for me, white privilege is saying like, I don't have to represent all white people. Like when there's a story about me or something happens about me, it's just me. Whereas when my, my family sees a, you know, a black person do something, they say, okay, well all black people are represented by that one individual. Does that make sense? So like white privilege for me is a lot of freedom. There's a, there's a lot of access to things that other people don't have. And the goal would be to deconstruct that so that people would share all of those cultural resources. So I appreciate it where like Joe Rogan was kind of going with that. I would probably say white privilege is a problem and is something that needs to be 
broken down and then shared. It can't just be like, oh, everybody, let's just raise everybody to that level. Like, there's necessarily a trade off there. Yeah, you know, in response to to Joe Rogan's thing, you know, access and opportunity are historic problems. Um, you know, women, minorities uh, have been locked out of opportunities. And on the on the flip side, when you start opening things up, then you have white men crying about we can't get jobs anymore. You know, we're our our standing in the world is compromised. So it's like, eh, you know, so I, I hear what he's saying. And I think there's there's some interesting um, value in what he's saying. But on the flip side, I don't know. I don't know if he and, and others could handle it in the way they think they could. Because there is a real trade off is what you're saying. Like there is a rebalancing act. There has to be someone is going to lose out a little bit like white privilege necessarily defined as like. I have all these privileges because other people don't. I have less competition because of my skin and because of how I present. So if there's going to be equal representation, I am going to lose something, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, a great uh, illustration of this was um, the Olympics in Nazi Germany. You know, Hitler thought this was going to be a showcase for white supremacy and and a master race. And they got their asses kicked. You know, I, I, I... (laughs) <laughs> Joe Rogan, whatever. Well, talk right. about white privilege poster boys. I mean, <laughs> uh, well, Bon Bonnie asked a question and we kind of flew by it, but she was asking, well, what is privilege? One of my favorite definitions of privileges uh, or, or in, in the construct of white privileges, it's not that white people don't have problems. It's that your race isn't one of the reasons for your problems. Right. And the narrative I hear is that in a societal shift, your race increasingly becomes a problem. If you have uh, programs where there's going to be increased access for some people, <laughs> white people do get upset. It's not just the rich, powerful white people that get upset. It's also people who are poor, people who don't have a lot of resources, and they see what little privilege they have in their skin being taken away from them. And I think that that, that has to happen <laughs> because that's the only way to have like a fair and just society. But I think most, and and this is probably going to sound awful, but I think most white people, at least ones that I know, would rather be in a society where white privilege is enshrined and there, there's not equality. They'd rather have racism than have the chance that their skin would somehow not allow them to to get something, to have any experience of being a minority. You know, I, I think that's probably true. Um, because I think white people have learned how to function with uh, race as kind of their, I don't know, it's just like a, yeah, like a privilege card. And to actually function in an, a society that's equitable probably does feel scary. Because, you know, how do you move in a society like that where people don't just grant you privilege based on the way you look? And if corrective measures tip too far, I'm thinking of like affirmative action. This is what I always hear. Oh, I'm white, so I don't get the access to college. If I'm a poor white person, I'm not going to get the benefits of of having some sort of racial identity that allows me to get into college better. So if there's any sort of tip toward an imbalance where white people don't have access that other people do, it's like there's this under underlying anger that's like burn the whole thing down. And like people are angry. Like if you watch all of the, the the Trump stuff over the last couple of years, it's real anger and it's really scary and dangerous. Yeah, it's scary and dangerous, but it's also like you can't tip it too far. Like, you know, if you look at history, I mean, come on. I'm I'm actually very much in favor of reparations. I'm I'm in favor of the level of atonement that's necessary to to heal the wounds. And I think, you know, if we if we were to actually go through and figure out what would be just, how could we get to a place where people, where everyone feels safe based on the way that they look, not just people who have white skin? We have a long ways to go. Like, there's yeah, a lot absolutely. of atoning to do, a lot of right. atoning to do for the sins of, in some cases, for the sins of our fathers and mothers and grandfathers and grandmothers and who knows how far back, you know? So, and it's all still present with us. If you can inherit something from your grandparents, like I'm talking about money. If you can inherit money from your grandparents, your grandparents grew up in a generation where people of color couldn't even drink out of the same faucet they could. 
imagine like the the amount of disparity when it comes to jobs, wealth, land. I mean, like so many people of color who came here couldn't even own land. And that stuff is exponential over the generations. So for everyone that says, oh, you know, racism's done. That was my great grandparents. It doesn't matter anymore. Like that, that stuff echoes and reverberates through the generations. So I think you're right about reparations and atoning. Well, not just generations, but the, the very foundations of our economic success as a nation. Like That's right. I, yeah, I, uh, and, and if we, if we can't look at those systems that were built on that economic success, like literally on the backs of people of color, then we, we're not even close to beginning to solve the problems. This is, this is going to sound funny, but like we talk about representation and stuff like that. And there's a, a, a commentator writer. Uh, he was one of the writers for a, a recent show called Castle Rock on Hulu is anyway. His name's Mark Bernard, and uh, he has a, a podcast with Kevin Smith, uh, who, you know, Kevin Smith, Clerks fame, and the, the, the podcast is called Fat Man Beyond. It's about, a, it's a comic book thing. Anyway, and they often talk about Batman and stuff like that, and we talk about representation where we have this amazing movie that came out, and if you haven't seen it, go see Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, of this important, like, the very basis and message of that film being anyone can wear the mask and representation of what having the Spider-Man mask mean and how it can be everyone and everything and stuff like that. And they got into a conversation about Batman and representation. And someone was saying that there was a rumor for a while that Idris Alba was going to be maybe considered for Batman and Mark Bernard, the black man argued that you can't, Batman's one of the few superheroes that has to be white. And the reason is because he's Bruce Wayne and he's tied to old money and how that the, the economic and foundational things of that character and the privilege to be able to run around in a bat suit and be a vigilante and do all that kind of stuff. And it was just this really profound thing where on the surface you could say, well, that's racist. Batman can be whatever color he wants, but this overall understanding of the structure that built that character it is foundationally white and it's it's a it's not a condemnation of race it's a condemnation of the system that we have that a character like that exists based off of old money and where that came from and generations of wealth being accumulated from evil gain that's so good preach that is so, I love that. so good yeah absolutely that's a case study for people that say race is not a problem or doesn't yeah, like that, that's fantastic jeff thank you but also it's it's that just always keeping the structure in mind. When we use the word race, know that we we are talking about a structure. And it's a powerful right. world word that um I think we often don't think about very carefully. Can I just say that I'm really excited that I got that kind of response talking about Batman? <laughs> just just gonna throw that out there. But my nerddom finally pays off in a podcast. Yeah. Well, <laughs> nerds rule. Nerds rule. Hey, um, so let, I want to ask you all to take a bit of a look back to your formations in your church worlds. Um, we we all have these kind of different yet similar fundamentalist upbringings. What was race and your religious world like? Like, what were you taught about it? What were you not taught about it, et cetera? God is white. I think that's like one of the um, most formative experiences of race in church is as a child having all the images of God, all the depictions of God, of Jesus as white European and um, growing up and never questioning that as I grew up as a child, just sort of seeing myself reflected in God and kind of going along with it. So, um, I would agree with you, Bonnie. That, but one of the things that stands out to me, Raj, when you ask that question, because the assumption is that Jesus is always white, right? Um, was that there was a lady in my congregation who was married to a Japanese man. Ooh, like this is scandalous. Um, in my context, but, but she was like our, the lady who made the banners, the banners at church, these big, beautiful, very, very uh, detailed banners. And someone asked her to make one, uh, an image of Jesus. And so Jesus shows up brown, potentially Asian looking, they said. And there was like a meltdown in the church. There was like a meltdown. And I was probably in eighth grade when this banner was rolled out. And it, 
it was beautiful and it blew my mind, but it also like for the first time made me aware of of this this conflict, I guess, amongst adults about Jesus and whiteness. Um, and did they really want this banner hanging in the front of their church because it caused them, you know, disruption? And that's one of the most formative things I remember as a young person around the issue of race and Jesus. For, for me, first of all, my church never talks about race ever. The word was never said from the pulpit. It was never an issue. There was never classes on it. We were largely white. I mean, there was probably one family who was Asian and one family who was black. And you did hear things behind th- their experiences because they're, they're friends of mine were very painful and very difficult. Um, and other people would always say, like, don't play the race card all the time. Like you heard that in the narthex and stuff. I think that we would have people visit the church from other countries and we'd let them do things like sing for us. And we would like orientalize their experience. Like, oh, that's so great. You know, and um, we would have mission trips to Mexico where we wouldn't learn anything from anyone. We would go down there to teach them and we'd go down there to build something for them. And that was it. There was no like sharing of resources or experiences or, hey, this is what it's like to be me. Nothing like that at all. And I think uh, I started to become aware of exporting Western values somewhere in like my senior year of high school, like recognizing, wow, we really we really hold up as heroes, people who go to other countries and get them to wear jeans and shit, you know, like stuff that's like something that makes them more like us. Um, but I will say one thing outside of there being like a absolute zero, there there was like almost a strict rule of not talking about race. That That's how, that's how prevalent the unwritten rule was, is you do not mention race from the pulpit or up front at all. My mom used to facilitate like the really this is kind of cool. The really old people in our congregation who were like 80 plus, my mom would actually facilitate me going over to people's houses and like talking to them, maybe like fixing stuff for them, working on stuff for them when I was in elementary school and junior high and just like, you know, giving them companionship. I met someone in our church who was in a Japanese internment camp and his story, to my knowledge, was never, ever shared with the congregation. There's this person who had this extreme experience of being ripped away from their community, of their families being torn apart, going to an internment camp in our church, and that never never was explored or talked about or brought to light. And I can't imagine what it would be like to be in that church, to never be able to talk about any of these realities because there was an explicit code of silence around all of it. For me, um, I mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, the Trayvon Martin And uh, I I talked a little bit about this on our episode with uh, Austin Channing Brown, but that moment in time reframed my entire history because to me, hearing the news story, it was obvious, like, this is horrible. And when I put it out there and seeing the backlash I got from because I, I, had, I had gone through my theological deconstruction. I had gone through all that stuff, and I felt like I was on the other end of it. And I felt like I had come to a certain amount of like peace with my past, and I had a lot of people that I was still really close with. And then when I started being – because I'm usually not very vocal on my personal Facebook page because I just share pictures of my daughters, and um, that's just not the place for me. Uh, but I was it just – it felt so obvious that I just started saying stuff. And the backlash really reframed things. And then I went back to my first church in my mind as I, as I kind of really asked myself, like, why is this happening? And I realized I was in a borderline megachurch in the middle of a poor Hispanic neighborhood. And the majority of our church was rich white people who are commuting in. And I was like, wait a minute. And then we never talked about it. It was just this. And then I started going through and filtering through all the missions trips and all the the videos that we had to pull people's heartstrings on a Sunday morning and how every neighborhood or every depiction of poverty always had a person of color in that image and how like it, it was, it was really, and it was mostly internal, like, but internally it was this huge shift it gave me a completely new lens to look at my past through even my formative years, just as a, as a, as an adolescent being uh, a minority white in junior high and high school and looking about how, wow, how, how valuable of an experience that was for me. And then, then looking at my, my, my bookshelf and seeing like N.T. Wright and uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And I was like, wait, 
these are all white guys. Like, wait, what is happening here? And then just having this whole and then going back to college where I had read liberation theology, but it didn't stick. It was just like, okay, whatever. You know, that's that's really interesting. That's good stuff. I agree with that. And then recognizing, no, there is a whole world of experience. Going back to what Casey said. I love that. I wrote it down. uh, That race is experiential. And and just going back to that, I mean, really, there's so much that I don't know. And then all that on the weight of this young man who died because of it. I can, I can never shake that. And thank God I can't, but I'm, I'm sadly disappointed that it took me that long to be aware of my privilege. I guess one of the, going back to that, one of the definitions of white privilege is the ability to deny that it exists uh, <laughs> or the freedom or whatever. Th- those are, those things will, will never, never leave me ever. I wonder how much nationalism is tied to all of that. Oh yeah. There, there are churches that like are extremely nationalistic and they tend to be conflated with their, their racism. Which is really interesting because um, historically, do you know when American flags started entering sanctuaries in the United States? I never thought about that. Uh, they started entering into uh, sanctuaries. American flags started entering into sanctuaries during World War II. Germans, German Lutherans were putting them in their sanctuaries um, because they were being harassed for being Nazis. Um, and so as a sign of patriotism and a way to show that they had become American, they were including uh, American flags in their worship spaces. Do you know why I have the hardest problem with that? Uh, this is a side issue, but the very top of the flag, like in the churches I've worked in, is a golden eagle, which is the symbol of Rome. <laughs> like they literally had standards with a golden eagle on top and like was that's what crucified Jesus. So to have that in a in a worship space for me is like my brain just kind of can't take it. Yeah. That's crazy. Well, um amazing sharing. Thank you for for that. And there's an arc that led you to the present. How did you arrive at being who you are today in in relation to race? And, and particularly, how was the church involved or not involved? Be- before we go there, Raj, do you mind sharing your own experience? Like, how was race formative in your Christian growing up experience? Yeah, I, I really appreciated what you said, Bonnie, about, you know, the white Jesus. Like, I, I fight with my family about that all the time. You know, a lot of them are still pretty conservative Christian. Um, I'm like, you, you're all praying to a white Jesus. That's not that's not the real Jesus. As a way to just break into conversation, kind of shake things up a little bit. Um, and, uh, and and in India, we have kind of there's there's these indigenous forms of Christianity. Um, but growing up where that that was the standard. All the men in in my family, all the Indians that I went to church with, they all wore suits, you know, Western suits. The women wore saris because that was, you know, the expression of, of dressing up. And that was kind of cool to have that part of the heritage evident in, in our family as we went to church. And I went to a pretty diverse church, but it was, you know, it was run by white people. We sang dusty old hymnals. It sounded like they were written by dusty old white people. You know, they would tell us, oh, these used to be bar tunes. We used to sing them in the pub. I was like, well, you throw in some beer in the mix, we might. So there was there was kind of this continual subtext of framing that, you know, white culture is is the right culture. And we welcome you in. And in order to be fully included, and this is a, a very strong, implicit message was, you know, look like us, sound like us, um, interact like we do. Um, bring food, bring your food because it's it's better than ours. <laughs> but um, for the most part, yeah, it was you know white is right. That that was a big part of the, the the messaging all the way around. And you go to Christian communities in India, and you will see a lot of those same kinds of things evident. But there, there's there's some change there. There there's a reclaiming of a relationship with Jesus in a very Indian way in many communities, and that's exciting to me. That, that's that's pretty cool to see. So would you say that you were profoundly affected by the the dog whistle of assimilation? You know, um my my family we we emigrated in the early 70s with a lot of of family and very close friends of my parents. So it was a pretty large Indian Seventh-day Adventist community in the Washington DC area. And I I remember kind of vaguely remember being really young and and my uncles and aunts kind of 
having a dialogue on like, well, what should we speak in our homes? You know, let, let's talk about this because we, we had family get togethers all the time. You know, some of the families chose to speak the native tongue in, in this in my mother's side was Tamil at home. So my cousins that grew up in those homes are still very fluent in Tamil and English and whatever else they might have learned. And my parents were like, we're going to do English only, partly because my dad's Telugu. So he speaks a different language than my mom, even though he knows Tamil. But partly because, you know, I think my mom and dad really felt like mastery of the language and losing the accent uh, would benefit us long term. And it's remarkable how so many people are like, oh, you have no accent. When they find out I wasn't born here, they're like, oh, this is blowing my mind. <laughs> um, and so in a way, what my parents thought would work did work in a lot of ways. But I really miss the fact that I, I can't talk to people in Tamil or Telugu uh, without a lot of uh, herks and jerks. And um, so there, there's a loss there. I think my journey started, Raj, actually going and uh, going to India. Um, when I was in high school, I had um, the opportunity, when I was a part of an evangelical group, to do mission work there, right? We were going there to save souls and notice a caste system, right? That's a big thing. And the eye-opener for me was the, um, the, what I walked away with was the caste system in our own country. Like racism was a very real thing here. And so that was the first thing I think that opened my eyes was um, us going, thus white people going to India to save people from this demonic, whatever, Hindu culture and tell them about the freedom of Christ and they no longer had to live in a caste system, that they were all equal in Christ. And yet most of the people in that, uh, on that trip were kids from the South white kids from the South who couldn't see that Christ hadn't saved people of color in our own country. We weren't proclaiming that. We weren't proclaiming liberation and and freedom from our own system, right? So I think that's where the journey started for me, um, especially growing up in California in the Central Valley with lots of my closest friends as a kid being kids of color. And so I didn't have I, I mean, obviously, I have hangups, but I but being with those kids made it very apparent that a lot of their issues weren't mine. And then just moving through college, living in Seattle, and then finding liberation theology. And that was, I think, the biggest thing. It was like the biggest thing was finding liberation theology and coming out. Because although being a I, you know, like I said, I pass as a white person, but the reality is being gay, I get to experience a lot of that sort of homophobia is a powerful tool and it's used all the time. I mean, even being in Arizona last week, I walked into a, a straight bar and um, the bartender said, would you like a drink? And just because of my the inflex in my voice, he used a pretty vulgar word against me, um, attacking women, you know, like, don't be a blank. And I walked out because this the message was, you're not welcome here. So I where I first experienced this sort of awakening was in India and being able to, sometimes it's best to step outside yourself and be able to see that. So I'll try to answer briefly. I could talk about how my exposure to other cultures, like studying Spanish under a really beloved teacher, um, going to Mexico and spending time with friends and getting to know older generations of people that I looked up to. But I think that's only half of it. That's not even half of, of where my journey started. It was just reading the book Poisonwood Bible, there is this story of a missionary family, and I read this in high school, that goes to Africa uh, to bring the gospel, and they're trying to baptize everybody's kids. They're trying to tell them to stop being polygamous, like force them to leave their wives and stuff that, they're, that they have in their family, um, and try to baptize their children in the river. But the river is a place of danger for everyone because there's crocodiles in there and they've eaten children. Like – that happens all the time. So they refuse to be baptized in the river. And there's this white preacher constantly trying to force them to do it. And as simple as that like story is, it's a really beautiful book. It started to disentangle in my mind, Christianity and white Christianity. There is something about the way that I was a Christian and I'm not even, I'm not going to pretend I'm not done. I mean, I'm still learning so much. Like I, I was reading the new Jim Crow. I'm discovering things all the time, but that's where it really began for me is that Christianity in particular 
is doesn't have to be white and isn't white. I was just going to mention my a profound experience with race really began when Julian was born, my oldest son. Um, we were living in Tappahannock, Virginia, which is a rural part of Virginia at the time. And uh, I think, you know, as a a white person who was holding a brown baby that came from my own body, I was faced with my race in a way that I had never been faced with it before. And it challenged me to think about Christianity and all the images that were portrayed about God and Jesus, uh, and, and to think, how do I want my son to imagine God and Jesus? And I had never really thought of that until I was holding this baby in my arms. And I was walking around the world, and people would notice that our races didn't match, and they would say things, sometimes scary things, because they were, you know, like, they just didn't automatically put us together as mother and, and son. So I think the the experience, the experiential aspect of race as a biological mother of a brown son has been really profound. And I continue to, and brown sons, now I have two, I continue to reflect on that and imagine how white privilege functions within all of the institutions, but particularly in the spiritual institutions. So last question is, how do you see your role in the work towards racial justice? I'll just, just quick listen to people who aren't white and speak with authority to those that are. I mean, that's Amen. just a simple answer. Same. Yeah. Learning for me and speaking and holding people accountable that are from my context. I think calling for atonement. Well, thanks family. This was an amazing conversation and uh, appreciate your vulnerability and your honesty and um, gives me great, great hope to be in relationship with you. Thank you, Raj. Yeah, thank you. That was good. Thanks, Raj. Uh, for those of you listening, let us know what you think. Uh, add your voice to this particular conversation by commenting in the show notes at irenacast.com slash 134. Uh, also in the show notes, you'll find all the links to the things that we discussed and other ways that you can like, follow, and contact the show. That's irenacast.com slash 134. Uh, on the other side of the music, we're going to, uh, I don't know, take a break from the heaviness, man. Uh, uh, and we are going to play a game that I am very excited about that Raj introduced in our conversation for coming up to this. So I think it's going to be good. This is a little bit of a word association, immediate kind of response thing. So, uh, on the other side of the music over under. All right, so a little behind the scenes when it comes to Irenicast. The segment is usually, when we sit down to plan it, usually the last thing that gets planned uh, for a lot of different reasons. We have a lot of segments that happen, and we're always trying to come up with new segments, mainly because this is a, a, a you know, this is not a visual medium. So we're, you know, we have a lot of great ideas and then we're, then we stop and we realize, oh, how do you do that when no one can see you? Uh, I think top three favorite vegetables was still the best we've ever done. I'm sure personally. you do. I'm sure you do. Um, so Raj threw out this amazing suggestion for a segment that I love that I think has a lot of potential and that I know will be back. So let us know what you think. So we're going to call this over under and Raj, why are we calling it over under what's, what's happening here? So I'm going to throw out a, a thing um, and you're going to scream out overrated, underrated, and then defend yourself on why you think that. All right. As the editor, of this show, I want to make one suggestion. <laughs> don't scream! <laughs> don't don't scream and peak your audio. And then number two, let's uh, let's let's have some order to this so that we're not speaking over all of each other and and all that kind of stuff. So just just to make my workload a little less. Um, so yeah, so let's uh, <laughs> let's uh, let's do that. You ready for the first one? I'm re yes. ready. 
All right. Avocado toast. Appropriately rated. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so millennial. <laughs> I was a vegan for a little while and putting getting avocado toast with some tomatoes on top and then some uh Santa Maria seizing. I know Jeff knows what that is. Oh, well, yeah. I don't even know what's in Santa Maria seasoning. I know, like, Basically, salt. it's salt, pepper, and garlic salt. Or okay, yeah. so, like, garlic, garlic powder, depending upon how you put it together. But so it's doing delicious. that, like right before going to the gym, it's the best thing in the world. I must confess, Raj, I've never had avocado toast, but I feel like now I have to. So I'll let you know if it's overrated or underrated. Paying for it is overrated. Making it at home. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> I, I am also going to go overrated just because it's so overhyped. Not that I don't love it. Like, I, I, I do it. I think it's the best with, like, a, a poached egg and let that delicious yolk. That's ah, good. It's really good, and I love it. But it's not the end-all, be-all. There's amazing other things that you can do. So, yes, totally overrated. Totally overrated. I say appropriately rated because it is rated pretty damn high in our – culture period. exactly i don't even know if it can get rated any higher so it's not right. <laughs> it's two and it's like ten dollars right. oh my gosh so i'm just gonna do it at home and then yeah, i'll text totally. you raj and let you know you can it's go pay 20 bucks though, avocado yeah it's, I got, well and i'm gonna get that good. egg i'm gonna put that egg on oh there. yeah That's definitely i have a yeah. suggestion so this is a challenge yeah. to all of us now that we're gonna Food. do it we are all going to make avocado toast and then we are going to post it to our instagram account and then everyone yeah. could get a taste of how we prepare our avocado toast. And then we'll just add to the hype since, <laughs> you know, hey, why my not? My resolution was to get serious about toast this year. So this is really happening. Only you Fantastic. would have a toast resolution. And then we can invite people to rate it. Like, who's the yeah, best? That's right. I, I can't wait to show you mine. It's on. Avocado it's toast. On. I'll show you mine just if you show me yours. <laughs> how do we go to a conversation on race to, like, the whitest thing? Like, uh, I don't know. Just comfort Raj. zone, right? Comfort zone. <laughs> All right, next next one. Jerry Seinfeld. Underrated. So underrated. I mean overrated. I'm sorry. Let me back up. Overrated. Jerry Seinfeld. Overrated. Not funny. I'm going to say underrated because the new generation doesn't appreciate who he is. They're like, oh, that's the guy from the B movie. And I'm like, oh, my God. I'm going to say as a person, overrated. The show, appropriately rated. I think he's become somewhat of a comedic curmudgeon where he yeah. has a bit of like an idea on how it's supposed to be and has become a little bit of a, a comedic dictator in terms of what's right and what's wrong. <laughs> but I think he was always like that, right? Didn't his show always start up with him doing a little bit of stand up? But I think his show right. was more like the little but the stand up was not like dictating what comedy should be it was his brand of his comedy that show. he was but he was being he was just displaying his brand of comedy now i think that he's imposing on what comedy is good and what comedy is bad maybe his character leaked out into his real life because his character you're right casey was throughout the show he's dictating what is funny and what's not to other people and he's like responding to people like hey this is not funny or hey like isn't it funny that that happened and like that that was the shtick arrogance that's what i always took arrogance away from <laughs> i loved it though i feel like the show is but is i always took it in an ironic way and he, right and like the difference between him and larry david is that he i guess jerry seinfeld would do it in a way that he would be the straight man, so it would, be, it would come off like arrogance, where Larry David would do it in a self-deprecating way. And the character of Jerry Seinfeld was never self-deprecating, which I think was a, a flaw, but was covered because the rest of the cast did it. But as, I feel like it was great. But as a person, I think it's come out that he, he doesn't, he's, he's not willing to admit that he's wrong. So I guess, Casey, you have a point there in terms of maybe it's just <laughs> uh, but, you know, real it, life imitating the art. <laughs> Between Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld, you know, on the Seinfeld show, he shared a lot of the comedic space with other really great actors and storylines, etc. You watch uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm, and it's all about Larry David. You know, self-deprecating, yes, but he's the center of attention all the time. I, I don't know. I might prefer Curb Your Enthusiasm over Seinfeld. But oh, I, to... I agree with you okay. on that, but... Uh, yeah, I'll throw my opinion in there. I think uh, I, I'm with you, Jeff. I think he's, uh, you know, rated well as as a performer, but as a as a person, I think I don't know. He's just not a nice guy. Um, 
that uh, the comedians in cars getting coffee. I can I watch it for the guests, but it reveals a little more about who he is as a person. I'm kind of like, oh, I'm a little disappointed. But I have no relationship with Jerry Seinfeld. <laughs> I have no idea, but I could write this conversation about Jerry Seinfeld. <laughs> Can we move on? <laughs> yes. Yes. Next. Yeah. Titanic. The movie. Overrated. Totally underrated. What? Underrated. Overrated. All right. You ready for a confession? Uh-oh. You've never seen it? Don't I think it's dare. so overrated that I have refused oh to watch it. And I love film like if you listen to the show for any amount of time if you've talked to me for more than five minutes uh i refuse i'm gonna stick true to the stubbornness i'm gonna be jerry seinfeld in this situation and say that <laughs> it is wrong so i'm gonna say it's completely underrated because it's not even worth my time to watch it's overrated in the oh, sense that ghost un- is overrated, overrated. sorry overrated okay. overrated so casey and bonnie you you guys are uh it's underrated so Defend yourself. <laughs> well, I'm not a huge fan of James Cameron, but I do think that the detail that he puts into his filmmaking is um, worthwhile. And the story itself, the ride that you're on, the way that you laugh and you cry throughout the whole thing. It has its is, ups and downs. Yeah, it's just, it, it, it's cathartic. <laughs> it's, it's, it can be actually really useful to emotional life. Exactly, especially at the end when the, when she returns and they're all waiting in the in in the stairwell there, like that for me is like the moment that makes that whole thing. Yeah, I'm totally sold on it. I I agree with Bonnie. I think that the ups and the downs. I think the um, and I think also you know like the reality of the all those people who died because they were locked down there. You know, I mean. It there is a conversation there about the people who continue to be locked and die because to save others. Like there's a lot to this movie, um, but in terms of, yeah, I just love it. Well, I was just gonna say that you know there aren't very many movies out there that are I don't know forty minutes of the dying process, knowing that you're going to Spoken die. Spoken like a chaplain. You That's work right. in a hospital, Bonnie. And right. who, what do you say? You know, who do you talk to? What do you remember? It's all there for you. It's very, I think it's helpful. I, this, I, I've got to reveal a, a, a little bit about, about our relationship, Bonnie, here. When we were in college, um, you know, we started dating in college. And a friend of mine was like, hey, you and Bonnie want to go see a movie. And I was like, oh, what movie are you looking at? And uh, it was a comedy. And I said, no, she's not going to like it. He's like, why not? I said, Every, no one dies at the end. <laughs> I appreciate movies. If, where ev- if die, everybody lives, she's not going to like it. <laughs> that's why I love you, Bonnie. Oh, that's, that's so good. That's what I love about this group is that we all have these things about our personality that connect with at least one person in the group about their personality. So, <laughs> Bonnie and Alan, you have death. We should have like a flow chart <laughs> <laughs> for real. Yeah, that's great. Like a Venn diagram. It happens ready for- to everyone, believe it or not. R- ready for the next one? I'm ready. Sorry. Grunge music. Underrated. 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 <laughs> we, oh, wow. Unanimous. We're all showing our ages. All the, all the white people. <laughs> grunge music is underrated. Hey, hey, the, uh, the grunge is awesome. Grunge is awesome. Have okay. you ever heard the Bad uh, Nirvana song? was like the soundtrack of my spiritual evolution. Have you ever heard the, the Nirvana song on key? Like on like, like they rekeyed it to where it's, it's like not, I forgot how, I'm not a music person, but basically it turns into like a pop song. Because they're not on like the off keys, they're on the on keys or something like that. Have you heard that before? Oh, oh like, that sounds right, terrible. It's, major it's so to minor. Awful. Yeah, that's the yeah worst. major to minor. Instead of minor, it's on the major, and they switched it, and you're like, wow, this is like the Blasphemy. worst music I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> Blasphemy. Yeah, I'll share it with you. So th- those are my four. All right, I like that. That was good. That uh, game is appropriately rated. I like it. <laughs> underrated. Well, underrated, totally underrated. I'm excited for the next one, Raj. Thank right. you for creating that. That's great. I'm curious to see what other people come up with as they right. run that one. So that's that's going to be a good one. That's a keeper. That's a keeper. Maybe we should maybe we should invite the listeners to in, oh uh, yeah to put some stuff out there. You know what we did for a while, and maybe we should reinstitute it. Is that we used to have a question of the week? So maybe like oh, yeah. the the 
the day after this episode posts. Like maybe let's do Wednesdays. Let's do question Wednesdays or something like that. And we will, we will pose the question for you. Give us a, I don't know. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. Let us know what you think. We want to engage more conversation with our listeners. Uh, even though that'll do it for us this week, that will not do it for us as a whole, as a podcast, as engaging everyone. So, uh, so let's find out what everyone's doing this week. Alan, how can people find you on the interwebs? As always, facebook.com backslash Rev Alan O'Brien. Friend me, follow me, whatever, and we'll talk. Raj, how about you? Uh, Facebook.com backslash Rev Raj Rambob. Casey? Rev Casey Tenen, and um, also my blog, which is the Queerly Faithful Pastor.com. Nice. And Bonnie? I'm on Facebook as well as Bonnie Lang Rambob. And all that will be in the show notes. And as usual, you can find me at Jeff Minaldi on all social media platforms and check out my other podcast, which is on another unintended hiatus, but we'll be back soon to find cinema.net. As for Irenicast, don't forget to subscribe to the show and never miss an episode. We're, we're available on all major podcasting platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and many more. And while you're there, if your platform allows it, uh, leave us a rating and or review. We're always looking for more and more ways to hear from you. And speaking of that, we recently got a review on Apple Podcasts from Will the Great. And he says, I'm on the other side of the country until I found Irenicast. I had no idea that anyone outside of the Bible Belt had similar negative church experiences to my own. They've helped me process and heal, and I've come to consider them my friends. I love Irenicast. Well, Will the Great, we love you. Thank you so much for those kind words. Thanks, Will, and we would love to hear from all of you and yes. uh, how, how you are feeling less alone in the world, no matter where you are. This is the team you did not know you needed, and we're so glad that you're connecting with us. And could you tell they're mostly pastors here since all of their Twitter handles start with Rev? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> all right. And also, if you want to support the show, you can do that by uh, going to our listener survey at renacast.com slash survey. The information you give us there will be super helpful as we move forward and continue to evolve the show. Uh, a big part of those listener surveys gave birth to to this team, to where we are now and where we're moving in the future. So uh, any feedback please let us know. And we've actually had a lot lately. So if you get back to us and we don't get back to you right away, be patient with us the holidays and, and transitioning into kind of organizing the five of our schedules to sit down and record this on schedule every week uh, or every other week is going to, you know, it's going to be difficult and it's going to take our time. So we're all working full time in other areas, but uh, we're committed to this and we love it. And Irenicast has yet to miss a post date. We have gotten an episode when we say we're going to get an episode every time so far. And uh, we are committed to doing that forward. So your government lets you down, but we do not. That's right. <laughs> no. I rent a cast does not shut down. <laughs> we have, we have open borders and hardworking politicians. Wow. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, so for this week, I'm Jeff. I'm Alan. I'm Bonnie. I'm Casey. This is Raj. Thanks for joining the conversation. 